0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow
1: brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. Just before we start today's show, uh,
2: Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube Quite simply, go on to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggly poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there. And please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus, for an exclusive experience, visit Royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter. Now, this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on Zoom, where, if you are in the audience, you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests. So join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the US, in the UK and globally. Subscribe and sign up today.
1: This podcast is a Royfield Field-Brown production find others on itunes all right ladies and gentlemen please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem
3: the united kingdom is a great country never
4: never been a good bet to bet against america
2: Hi, hello and welcome to this episode of the Middle Atlantic Podcast, where today we are delving into the escalating US migrant crisis under the Biden administration. We're witnessing unprecedented numbers of unauthorized border crossings across the southwest, which is challenging federal resources and policies. In a single day, the US Border Patrol apprehended nearly 9,000 migrants, a number indicative of a broader growing challenge this surge has sparked a range of responses from expanding deportations to increasing work permit access for certain nationalities the administration is facing criticism from various quarters republicans accuse it of being too lenient while immigration advocates argue for more comprehensive immigration law reforms amidst this local areas like southern arizona and south texas are significantly impacted the crisis is not just at the border. Its impact stretches far and wide, reaching to cities like New York, which is in an influx of 95,000 migrants in 2023 alone. New York City's response to this influx has been significant, with over $2 billion spent on accommodating the asylum seekers. And projections suggest that this could rise to $12 billion in three years. More than 150,000 people have arrived in less than two years in just the Big Apple Alone, leading to overcrowded shelters and people sleeping in harsh conditions, so we're going to try and understand some of the complexities around this crisis and the broader implications of this significant issue on national policy and human lives. So today we are joined by Michael Donahue, drumroll in Los Angeles, Jared Kobeck oh, you're also in l a as well. That sounded uh, rather camp We go oh and Tanya Altrade, who's in London in the u k And we will be joined by Steve O'Neill, who's also in London, and they will offer their insights into uh, this pressing topic and the topic of the post office crisis in the UK.
0: Tonight, we continue our in-depth look at America's border crisis. The mayors of Chicago, New York City and Denver say their cities have reached a breaking point due to a surge of migrants being bused from Texas. CBS's Maribel Gonzalez shows us the challenge in Chicago, where more than 34,000 migrants have arrived since 2022, with nearly half of them still in shelters.
4: These are the latest asylum seekers to arrive in Chicago. After a long journey by bus from Texas, this commuter train ride is probably their shortest trip. With temperatures plunging, so are their fortunes, as they arrive only wearing T-shirts and blankets in a city struggling to keep up. Nearly 15,000 are in shelters and 550 currently waiting for a bed. With no place to go, some are sleeping in tents, city buses, and even at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Pastor John Zayas has been on the front line since the first bus arrived in August 2022. He's part of a 17 church citywide unity initiative to find migrants temporary shelter. The issue is that it's coming so fast and it's hard for us to
2: catch
1: our breath.
2: I don't know where to start on this, but I'm going to start with you, Michael. If I was a Fox TV viewer, this has been the most pressing crisis all the way through the Biden administration. And I think it's fairly safe to say that, let's say, more liberal media has only really swung into really how pressing this crisis is in, let's say, the last six months. Would that be a fair reading?
4: Yeah, I think so. It's always been a conservative talking point. And Trump obviously took some pretty drastic actions to try and create a deterrence, much like we're seeing in the UK, migrant crisis. But now that Biden's back in charge, and I think, honestly, just the video of migrants continuing to show up on American streets without proper lodging or displacing uh, students or filling hotels, it's it's an unavoidable reality at this point. And I think that's why the the tide has finally turned on this problem.
2: Jared, I I remember speaking to you uh, many moons ago. I can't remember if it was actually on, on the show or not. But you talked about how the immigration law changed in the mid-60s and how that fundamentally changed American politics. Does there need to be a paradigm shift now? America is at a crisis point. This isn't a left-wing or a right-wing, a Democrat, a Republican talking point anymore. You have liberal cities who literally cannot take in any more people. We have people at the borders. We have some just under half a million Venezuelans who have been given temporary protected status. This is a massive crisis. If it's such a massive crisis, where will the political will come to fix this multi-headed hydra of a problem? That's a very good question. I That's the reason.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I realized that after I said that. I have no idea. This is this has been an ongoing issue and live hand grenade in American politics since the second Bush administration. One of the things that he really did try to do was get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform through because either he or people in his administration could see what was coming which is not something foresight is not something that's usually associated with that presidency but it was really true and the republicans in congress basically destroyed it where the political will comes from is very hard to say i think at least for the time being this is one of the things too that i think should really be specified is that this is an just an American issue. Americans think that every Ameri- ev- anything that's happening in the country is fundamentally just happening in America because the rest of the world doesn't exist. But every developed country, at least in Europe, is having similar political paroxysms and problems around asylum seekers, and no one's really come up with. A, a particularly good solution to it politically Can we have some faith that the hideously dysfunctional american political class will be the people who come up with the the good idea hard to believe
2: this is all playing into right-wing populism isn't it mike and, and to, to jared's point uh whether it is britain whether it's germany whether it's sweden you name the advanced economy that you want there seems to be some level of pressure from migrants. And, and, and some of these are countries which have been pretty, have had pretty liberal attitudes towards migrants before. But I suppose it's the wave of migrants that people seem to be chafing at. But if we look at somewhere like New York City, Mayor Eric Adams has declared a state of emergency, estimating the crisis will cost the city that something like twelve could cost something like twelve billion in the next three three years. It, in a weird way, Mike, considering that this problem is hitting red and blue cities jurisdictions, that possibly could this crisis be the thing which can actually help to break the the partisan divide in American policy. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but the fact. That this problem is so big and is so multifaceted but it's hitting both sides of America. could this possibly be something which could heal america's fractured political politics
4: so not any time soon, the Biden administration is currently requesting several billion dollars in specifically for border aid, and a number of Republicans have come out this week and and said. I'm not going to vote for anything that's going to make Biden's job easier. The political hand grenade that was mentioned is, is certainly still very much alive and well to the point where the GOP doesn't seem to have any qualms about saying, yes, we know this money could potentially help the issue somewhat, but we're not going to give Biden any political wins in an election year. I don't. When I took game theory in college, it was all about competing against a rational actor. And I'm just not sure that we have rational actors on both sides.
2: Yeah. This whole issue, Jared, seems to be fueling the Republican primary runners and riders. And Nikki Haley, who is from immigrants, at least her parents were anyway, has come out as being quite hard. She basically says we should be deporting undocumented immigrants. And she's expressed her support for the immigration agents are carry out deportations, advocating for a, a shift from catch and release to catch and deport. And the American public seems to be, their, their attitude seems to be hardening and seems to be behind it. Could this be an issue which is going to be somewhat kryptonite for Biden in the forthcoming uh, election?
0: I think if it were a normal election, it would be terrible. For him, I think it's not going to help. There's no way it's going to help. I suspect that election will be about other things. But it's true. The Democratic Party, for whatever reason, allowed not a very. allowed people to have terrible rhetoric and terrible quasi policy on this issue biden less but i think that i think it's not good for i don't think it's good for any left-leaning politician unless you do unless they do something like in denmark where anti like the immigration stuff has now become a left-wing or a soft left-wing issue i don't think i don't think it can ever be good for a Democrat, unless there has, unless there is some uniformity of control of the presidency and the Congress and serious immigration reform is passed. It's always going to be worse for them than it is for the Republicans because the Republicans like a lot of the things on the right and I don't want to broadly stereotype the right on this, but The right wing always has a luxury that the center and the center left and the far left don't necessarily have, which is the default position is always just smash it. like Just do this very simple thing, and that can be the solution to the problem. And simple solutions to the problem, hey, let's deport everyone. I think they just, I think they play better politically because they're easier to understand. Now, if you think about Haley's idea, the amount of infrastructure involved in that would be enormously expensive, too. It's like the issue is not, the issue is a very complicated issue because it's, there's no win on this. This isn't like a normal political issue where, any like where there could be a semi decent solution to it everything is just bad You <laughs> know, like every
2: answer to this is going to be bad mm. It it is interesting if you look back at the the history of this and i know that in the 1960s there was a great reform also reagan in, in the mid-80s has this massive amnesty and the fact that he very obviously he's a a line of Republican politics, but his attitude to immigration was very different from the modern uh, Republican Party. But Mike, I'll come on to pathways for US citizenship. And again, I'll stick with Nikki Haley because I think she can speak about immigration in a way that, let's say, many other American politicians can't, or at least ones who are running to be president, because her parents uh, came from the Indian subcontinent Her stance is that the U.S. should be creating a new pathway to citizenship for undocumented. How they should be doing it it is somewhat unclear. However, she does believe that undocumented immigrants should not be allowed to work in the U.S. whilst their uh, status is being um, assessed and has stated that U.S.-born children of undocumented immigrants should not have birthright citizenship. In most countries of the world, that would be seen to be Quite reasonable, but you Americans have this big thing about birthright citizenship, don't you? That if you're born on the hallowed ground of the United States, you are a U.S. citizen. Would this be overturning something which is pretty fundamental to what makes America America? Sure, not not only the fact that it's in the Constitution,
4: but it's, it's a real core precept. But again, are whether you, without looking at the reality of how we've treated immigrants over the centuries, the American approach of prima facie, let's get as many Americans as we can, or a melting pot, leveraging the strength of our differences, et cetera. I think that's something that inherently Americans value it. I think it sets us apart, honestly, from any other countries. And to start chipping away at that, even in times like this, I think we'd want to look at other measures first before doing any sort of radical alteration to the Constitution.
2: Hmm. But this is like, what she's talking about doing is potentially deporting, well let's say the Republicans because she's not exactly out of track with mainstream Republican thought. She's on about deporting 6 to 7 million undocumented immigrants who have entered the U.S. since Biden's presidency. would Ending birthright citizenship be more radical than that? You-
4: the problem is, to be deporting six or seven million existing illegals is not feasible. It's just not. Changing laws to eliminate birthright citizenship is feasible. It's a much more practical, near term sort of option. So, of the two, if you had to say which one was more likely, I would have to say changing the birthright citizenship. The, there's no way you're going to start extracting, ripping up communities and trying to get rid of millions of people who have been living here for any number of years. And yeah, she's very far right. She's far more right than she tries to appear. And she's been getting caught up in some of these traps lately. She's our very own Suella Braverman. I'm not going to say pound the shop Soella Braverman because I think she's a little, maybe she's our Nordstrom's
2: Suella Braverman. Great analogy, great analogy, but if the u s was and this is a question for you, Jared, but if the u s was to end birthright citizenship or at least for let's say for non american citizens, so it doesn't completely get around right with the notion it might help alleviate a small proportion of the problem, might not it because that is one of the reasons, and it's not reason number one, it's not even in the top five. But it's one of the reasons why many young people do come to the United States, isn't it? Yeah,
0: but I think that yes, but it's a terrible idea. It's completely antithetical to the country. It's completely antithetical to kind of everything about the American project. I weirdly, everything, I feel sir, everything. Yeah, really. To. Listen, I mean, Fundamentally, you, you tell me. You, yeah. You're American. I'm the I, best person here to be <laughs> schooled. And- I'm also the American son of an immigrant. So I'm like Nikki Haley, right? I have the authority to make absurd proposals. Now, Republican. <laughs> yeah. No, I think America at its best, the American project at its very best, is supposed to be a country where everyone just shows up and consents to be governed. And in giving that consent, are a series of things are extended to them, one of which is birthright to their children. I think one of the things that we've missed in all of this, is this actually a problem? Certainly, it is a problem in that there is not infrastructure to handle people coming in. And certainly, I think it should not be done in the crazy backwards way that it is actually happening. But without immigrants, I'm pretty certain this is a country that does not have a birth rate that could replace its citizenship. There is a huge body of scholarly literature that seems to consistently indicate that having more immigrants into the country is overall good for the economy. The problem is that Immigrants are an easy target. Migrants and refugee seekers and asylum seekers are easy targets for a series of complicated social problems that are bedeviling the working class in America, right? I'm not sure the immigrants actually cause those problems. If you wanted to have a good immigration policy, we should let in everyone who has a net worth of less than $70,000, So many of the country's problems are directly related to letting in immigrants who have a lot of money. If that policy were in place, we'd never have gotten Rupert Murdoch and we'd
2: never would have gotten Elon Musk. To your point, migrants do contribute massively economically. Migrants, regardless of their status, are key contributors to the nation's economy as workers' entrepreneurs. As you alluded to, taxpayers, consumers generating substantial tax revenues and spending power. And when it comes to employment and business creation, specifically in New York, they have immigrants have high employment rates and more likely to start businesses, thus creating more jobs. To your point, yes, they are key to driving any advanced economy because the birth rate in all advanced economies is less than without immigrants is less than replacement utterly less and if nothing else we need them to wipe bums of of the elderly in care homes if nothing else and we need them for much more than that for the reasons which i've said and you've also said but the problem is it's the unprecedented wave and we don't have political consensus around housing them and there is a dislocation element to this, if you have one hundred fifty thousand New Yorkers in two years, where are the kids going to school? Where are they living? What does this do to rents? What does this do to to wages at, at, at the bottom end of the economy? This does displace people, or at least those immigrants then fight even harder for those uh, low wage jobs at, at the bottom end of the uh, economy which does put pressure on dare i say indigenous um, americans and this is the same thing happens whether it is in new york whether it is in birmingham in the uk whether it is in let's say rotterdam in holland and we are seeing because there isn't this political and societal consensus the rise or let's say extra fuel for right-wing populist politics Mike, I'm right, aren't I? That fundamentally what we do need is a politician brave enough to say we need these immigrants but we need to bloody roll up all of our sleeves and have a wider societal solution to these unprecedented numbers of migrants coming to all Western countries. And then part of that is for us to look beyond the election cycle and actually for a lot of the processing to be done in the country where the migrants actually come from and then also for us to try and alleviate let's say maybe some of the economic and political reasons the reason why people so need so feel the need to leave their home countries in such large numbers and go to western ones Woof, I said a lot there. I don't know if all of it made sense, but Mike, please make sense of my one-man monologue.
4: Yeah, so what you're proposing is that we take a nuanced and multifaceted approach to resolving the problem, Um, which is the exact opposite of what Americans
2: want to do with their problem. Shoot, Shoot them at the border. Mike, to be fair to Americans, us Brits who used to see ourselves as sober, and and much more pragmatic. We're running around with our hair on fire as well when it comes to immigration. And Western countries are now catching the same conflagration. We have a right-wing populist now in liberal, sober Holland fueled by immigrant fears. So we're all can getting I, crazy.
0: Can, can, can I just jump in for one second to say that this, if you look at Denmark, this is not solely a right-wing issue you have a danish policy right now is and i don't know the full details but i have read about it but i'm not an expert denmark is run by essentially a center-left party and their policy now is to hair down neighborhoods that aren't sufficiently danish where if they have bodies of ethnic enclaves from asylum seekers or migrants, and those people have not assimilated into Danish culture, the solution now is to literally pull down the neighborhoods. So this is a thing that is bedeviling everyone. And the responses have been
4: uniformly bad everywhere. I think the problem for the Dems is that where if we're in the bottom of the ninth for the first nine innings, they've been very pro sort of immigration and very quote unquote soft on immigration, and it's a little harder on a two party system for one of the parties to just do a do an about face and and start advocating uh, differently than the way that they have for the last thirty four years. But I think just political prudence is going to require that shift on behalf of the Democrats.
2: Mm. Time will tell how big a role this will play in the 2024 presidential election Time will tell how much a role it will play in the presidential primaries this year And time will tell if we will ever find a politician or political coalition On both sides of the Atlantic that can take this thorny issue I'm going to mix my metaphors here Take this thorny issue by the bull by the horns and uh, knuckle down double down on it and make good on the fact that we all need immigration to fuel our economies but this does involve uh, some level of political bridge building and on that note we're going to move to the good old UK. dive into the Horizon Scandal, a saga of mismanagement and oversight failures that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has called one of the greatest miscarriages of justice this country has seen. At its core, the scandal involves the Post Office and Fujitsu, the Japanese company behind the Horizon software, which led to the wrongful conviction of 983 sub-postmasters between 2000 and 2015. The scandal began with the post office's adoption of Horizon in 1999, a system intended to modernise transaction and stock management across approximately 18,000 branches. After its implementation, sub-postmasters reported unexpected and unexplained accounting shortfalls. Despite these early warnings, it took nearly two decades for the system's faults to be properly recognised. This delay in acknowledgement. An action points to a severe lapse in governance and accountability. The post office, using its investigative and prosecutorial powers, pursued legal action against the submasters, ignoring early evidence of software issues. The scandals' roots extend beyond the post office, implicating the UK government and Fujitsu's influence. And this also highlights the role Of privatization and the lack of proper government oversight in such a key industry.
1: I set it all up to go and commit suicide. I come back and I told my wife it was finished. I said I can't live with this.
3: Scarred by a scandal, crimes he did not commit. Rab has been living a grim existence after being convicted for shortfalls in the faulty horizon system during his time running the local post
1: office. It kept going up and up to 10,000, 15,000, up to 60,000 eventually. It come the day that there were, uh, I was to find out what was going to happen to me. Two minutes before I was due to go and see the judge, uh, my lawyer turned around and said to me, just plead guilty, and I said... No, 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 I said, I don't plead guilty. I said, I've not done nothing wrong. I said, I've told you this for day one. I know, he says, but it'll be easier for you and your family.
3: Rab was one of around 100 people given a criminal record here in Scotland and so far only four have had their convictions overturned. The difference here is that unlike in England and Wales where the post office was acting as a private prosecutor, here it's the Public Prosecution Service in Scotland who were pursuing cases. And it's emerged that it first became aware of issues with Horizon in 2013 but it didn't stop chasing cases until 2015.
2: We are talking about a UK scandal, which is just, I don't really understand in terms of how we've known that this was a problem for at least five years, but it's taken an ITV program to get the government actually to swing into action. But Mike, um, you are our true Mid-Atlantic person here, because yes, you're an American, but you take a real close view on British politics and British culture and I know you wanted to speak on this, so I'm actually going to come to you first, and then I'm going to go to Tonya to and to Steve. I've given a little bit of the background of this, but could you just tell us tell us how this actually came to the public's attention, that this long-running scandal, uh, long-running issue, uh, was being so forgotten by mainstream media? How did it get from being something which investigated Reporters were talking about, were trying to uncover through to ITV doing a drama over Christmas, which is the most watched drama. So I know you've been following this. Take us from maybe the 20 teens to now, very quickly. For those of you who don't know, the simple premise is that the post office, which
4: is a lot to a lot of people's misunderstanding, is actually a private entity now. It was privatized way back when. I don't know exactly when, but. They had introduced a new sorry back twenty thirteen they had introduced a new computer system for all the regional post office attendants, and it it developed over over dozens and dozens of shops where the accounting system was flawed, leaving the shop owners in a deficit which they were then required legally to Make good on, leaving many of them penniless. Many of them had to sell their homes, etc. And this was all based off of flawed accounting. That the 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 money wasn't really missing, and it was reported. It did go to all the major outlets. We're all aware of it. It wasn't like this was being hidden. Basically, what happened was that there was a sort of a a group of impacted postkeepers that were sort of banded together. Because they had all been told individually that they were the only ones with the sort of accounting problem, nobody else was experiencing. It. So it wasn't until uh, some of them got their MPs involved that it, it elevated up the, the political uh, ladder and, and slowly headed towards some sort of legal resolution. But no, none of none of the nobody really cared about it, and I I, I can understand why it's a little bit arcane. I think there's always the thought that the postkeepers might have been keeping a little bit for themselves on the side. And again, it's the post office. It's not exactly sexy or exciting. Now we have, I think in part due to the horizon inquiry that's been going on for about the last year. I think we're about a day, 120 or so of the inquiry itself, which is forever long. And I think, yeah, they said, hey, we're going to make a we're going to get a few hours out of this. And they picked a really well-known and, and perfectly cast actor, who is I think his role and his casting made a big difference. And yeah, it's caught fire. And thankfully, I think Rishi just yesterday announced that they were going to vacate all 600-odd convictions
2: um, of, of these impacted Postmasters. Tonya, can we not, as Brits, but chew gum and walk at the same time. In that, yes, there has been an inquiry. Yes, there's been investigative journalism about this. But for the average Brit, they weren't aware of this. Was Brexit all-consuming? Were the scandals in Downing Street all-pervasive? That we, somehow, this has flown underneath the radar, that literally a thousand people were convicted... The majority of them thrown in prison over accounting software. And then the company that created the software, when the fault was completely and utterly revealed, was still getting billions, with a B, billions from the UK government for other software projects. Like, what jumped up dysfunctional country are we living in? And I mean that with the greatest of respect that number one, the media weren't all over this. And then, B, that the government is still in treating with Fiji and still giving them billions of UK money. You've said it all, Ryfield. We seem to have a
5: cacophony of toxic and secretive organizations who are in bed with the media, who are Osfuda and I in bed with the governmental. Or- politicians. And the merry-go-round continues. So it's a menagerie of these groups. And if they want to keep something underneath their blankets, they will do for as long as possible. It's a revolving around these this different groups of people. It's unbelievable that it, this has been going on for a long time. And there were some people who had known about it and who had seen it. But you're right, none of the mainstream media actually took any interest you had people like maybe Computer Weekly, who took some interest, or Ian Hislop's Private Eye, yeah, who had been banging the drum about it. Those very only guys who was interested and determined to follow it up all these years. A lot of people, mainstream media, completely shut their eyes of it. And and then you had today at Prime Minister's Questions, lots of politicians come out of the woodwork to say what a great job they've done because they spoke about this for twenty seconds ten years ago or eight years ago, and then they never asked about it anymore. Yeah, we've completely been reckless, and as a result of our politicians not taking interest in the things that matter to their constituents, we have this situation.
2: Mm. Uh, Steve, I want to come to you. What exactly is the the political fallout of, of this? I didn't watch the ITV drama. But as I said, this whole thing, it just feels incredibly weird. And I'm not on about the initial software glitch. I want to put that to one side. It is the government feeling that something needs to be done. It's ITV, not constituents, not investigative journalism, which has forced the government into saying, yes, we need to quash these convictions but please tell me about the political fallout of um, this, this whole scandal so yeah the whole thing
3: is remarkable isn't it? i've never seen anything like in a tv program
2: creating this kind of response as you say it's remarkable oh, oh contrary there is precedent windrush was exactly the same remember it was the itv windrush drama which then forced Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, to resign. Then Theresa May then apologise. So there is precedent for this. But is that what needs to happen? That forget constituents sending messages to their MPs, forget newspapers. It's can you get a drama, quite literally, that what well, the next week the government then is quashing convictions? I don't know. I don't understand how... The checks and balances of our democracy is supposed to work. And with the press being the third estate, it's not the press, it's TV. Anyway, sorry, I jumped in.
3: Yeah, I had completely forgotten the Windrush thing was a drama. That is that is amazing too. How does it happen? If I was being this, a sensible kind of centrist, which is the role I play sometimes, I would say probably what's happened is it's been a trickle and all, all these things happen, campaigns happen. It's a trickle of pressure. And the moment that the Blackgate's open must have been a documentary. So it's probably, there is the work of some of those MPs who raised it, of the campaign that's been running since, I don't know, a beggar's belief, since 2009, since the story broke and the campaign started. So it will have been this bill of a pressure. They, they will have been thinking about it behind the scenes as it became clear. The court in 2019 said this system was faulty, what's going on here. But it probably is explained by that. I think there are also a couple of deeper things, though. What well, one is the the state, and I know, years ago I used to be a civil servant, so I have a little bit of experience. The state it's very slow to correct itself and very quick to defend itself. And you see, you're seeing that a bit with some of the civil servants in the blame game around this, and you also see similar w- with the COVID inquiry. And you'll see more. It's it, there's a re- it's very slow to admit faults, and that happens a lot because it, it feels it's in charge. It's got to got that reputation to maintain there's a real culture of that the other thing with the public though and this is something that is the the biggest theme beneath the surface of British politics it used to be division now it's distrust no one trusts politicians no one trusts the kind of political sphere in the state and this is a great example of why but what people see is failure cover up injustice and it's this kind of thing that is the issue I think and Keir Star has been talking about this in his last few speeches of, of trying to get that back, get that hope back, get that trust back. But this kind of thing is really damaging for our politics. Mm. Uh, Settlement
2: in 2019 with 555 postmasters was criticised for not covering legal fees and many victims are still awaiting compensation and the quashing of convictions. Now, Windrush, again, right... After the government did a massive mea culpa in the mid-20-teens around this, and we had like a month worth of documentaries and, and stories of elderly West Indians who've been in the country for, for 70 years, worked for the National Health Service, then found themselves homeless and if not deported back to to somewhere which they could barely even remember, they're still waiting for, for their compensation after the government said they would very quickly deal with it. So this question, Steve, about the slowness of bureaucracy, which is read, read what you talked about. I can't imagine if this went down in the US, that it would take them the best part of 20 years to correct this. Because they've got too many hot shot bloody laws, it's litigious as a place. And there'd be a class action suit. And this question is for you, Steve. And then Tanya, I you, you know, feel free to jump in afterwards. The, the wheels of how things turn seems to me, if I look at Windrush, you just sit on your hands for a bit. Say you're going to pay everybody. Say that the money is being given to the requisite department to pay people. Slow roll it. Wait for a few of them to die. It's hard. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Just why
3: why this kind of thing is so slow. Uh, and this, what I've pointed out, 1999, it's, it's so long ago. So this I find hard to believe. I know, even when I say I know the British states, there, even when I say I know people sit on their hands because they don't want to acknowledge mistakes or even acknowledge challenge. It's not even they know it's a mistake. I just don't think it's that insidious. It's acknowledging the challenge in the first place. And that's what you're seeing with a lot of the minister's denying it, and they were told by their officials, told by the managers, of nothing to see here. They didn't even really look, I think. It's probably what happened. But yeah, I, I don't know really what to add. It is remarkable how long it's taken.
2: Tanya, our American cousins, right, if the same thing went down with the U.S. Postal Service, there's no way they'd be waiting. The best part of 25 years. It, right? Can I, can I, this, can I,
0: can I just on. jump in for a half a second? Go on. I do not want to make this sound like I am unduly defending the British political system, which I find to be consistently worse than the U.S. political system. But probably the best analogy I can think of in the U.S. to this would... And it's not the greatest, but this is a country that interred in camps... It's Japanese American citizens during World War II, They did not get. They did not get their reparations for
2: forty years. Reagan. It was Reagan, okay. But you know what, though, and I, I hear that, but that was a different time.
0: My gut feeling is, if this had happened in America, which it couldn't, because we're not so insane as to give our post office prosecutorial powers, but. They do. We do have post office cops. I think it would have taken just about as long, to be honest with you.
2: Really, considering there'd be a class action suit. Yeah, but the those things absolutely would. Absolutely, there's
0: no question there would, but those things take ten years before people really get paid out. Maybe longer. I every,
2: but but there is the paying out, and then there is the we have done wrong right we have Sunday too yeah oh no that's absolutely true i
0: i don't know i think you're giving america more credit than it deserves on this which
4: is not to take take away from how terrible the uk is i will say in in the uk's defense a little bit i did hear uh, nadim zahari the other day when he was being interviewed because he had a role to play in this and he just he flat out they asked him, what would you say to the, the people who have been impacted? And he flat out just said, I'm sorry, I wish I had done one. And whether it's for legal reasons or cultural reasons or whatever, you will never find an American CEO and a politician just flat out saying, I'm sorry, I wish I had done one. It's extremely rare. Uh, we never want to admit, maybe it's because of our litigiousness, but we never want to admit any sort of culpability. We
5: tend to have the same culture here sometimes where people are very wary of saying, I'm sorry. Speaking of culture, I think it's a combination of probably three things. One, there's a culture of always protecting the organization. Regardless of what happens, people just put their arms up and want to defend the organization, which is the first thing they they really want to do. And that's what you you had with everyone who worked in the post office from the CEO all the way down. They thought protecting the post office was more important than being fair to these people and giving them justice and then and then taking accountability for the wrongs and the historic feelings that they had done. Then we talked about the media being embedded with politicians and then them being in bed with you know, the top bosses of, of of organizations. What the politicians want, they would simply get you know parrots in the media to go out and parrot that out. We have question time every Thursday here. And you have the likes of hate-to-call-names, but Isabella Occhott, who just comes and parrots what the government wants, government of the day wants. And then the idea of you have to create drama. If you have watched the ITV documentary, Alan Bates himself said he was surprised that creating drama is what worked for them. That's what seems to work. That's what seems to draw attention. And that's what seems to have drawn the attention of these politicians to now take it seriously after 11, 10, or, or, or 11 or so years. So creating drama is and being furious about something is what it takes and just it's a very toxic culture, but it is what it takes these days and
2: that's what we're seeing. Privatisation. Steve, the post office has the prosecutorial powers. Can we have a private entity taking people to court? This is a key strategic service which underpins the workings of the state it's of vital importance it should not be run for profit and that's before we talk about the terrible working conditions that now postmen and postwomen now have etc cetera, etc cetera. and the was it half a million pound bonus which was paid to the ceo just last year surely we need to start taking back some key services back into public ownership and this service is is key for that. Steve, my brother, surely you're with me on this. We've got to take the post office back. It's ridiculous. And it, it doesn't serve us as Brits that a private entity is making money off of it and is saying, oh, taxpayer, all this conversation we need to pay, you need to weigh in. No, Fujitsu should be completely 100% and we need to renationalize. Steve, you're with me, aren't you?
3: Yeah, I I think so. Particularly these kind of powers that that go back a long way. When you really think it through, what why are they? Why is an organisation like that got the powers? Why isn't it with done normal way through police complaints and courts and things? It does sit very uncomfortably. I think with whether it's things delivered by private or public, the key thing is accountability and oversight. And clearly, that kind of thing has gone wrong in a number of cases. And here, it's taken so long to get to the truth. You wonder where that oversight was coming from, for example, with the work of the Horizon system. And so, as a private or public, there needs to be that accountability, that transparency, and it sounds like it wasn't there in this
2: case. There's this weird kind of space that many of these large privatized companies, organizations probably the better word for it, inhabit, don't they? Because... The government doesn't seem to want to really regulate them. In the 80s, we had this new word, quango. There was a quango for it, quango for water, quango for electricity and whatever. And we were told that these bodies would keep these entities truthful, keep them still working for the consumer. They don't. They absolutely don't. They're actually too big for the government to be able to step in and to regulate. And they have a different set of incentives. It's all about making money, harming down to the bare bone the the way that the the system is, is actually run, and not actually giving extra benefit to the consumer at the end. It's about delivering shareholder dividends, which is antithetical. If you're running a bloody post office, right? What I want is belts and graces. Security and systems, so I know that my letter is going to get from point A to point B. And the head of the post office is getting up half a million pounds in bonuses, not in basic bonuses, and the service is getting worse. This isn't fit for purpose. Call me a bloody communist and a revolutionary, but like the post office, water, right? There's some key things which the commercial market doesn't serve. Tanya, are you with me let's take the thing back into public ownership I am with you on many respects to take some
5: things back into public ownership and this is what largely frustrates me about Brexit because I felt the EU was the one that protected consumers rights the most and it was the one that was big enough to take on some of these large corporations and us finding ourselves out of the European Union and lacking, whilst there might be some some basic consumer rights that we still have, just lacking that protection, I find hugely really frustrating and I grapple with it every day. There are, like you say, vital services that we should have in-house and that we should be not privatizing whatsoever because of the incentives. We are pulling in multiple directions every time. If you worked for the civil service or if you worked for um, any other organization that is aligned to government spending, you had some basic values that you had to comply with. And largely, most people did managing public money as a responsibility. Um, the way you spent public money, the judiciousness that you needed to apply in making decisions. Um, and the the fiber of, of truths and, and, and the way that you had to communicate things. With private organizations, you absolutely do not get that everywhere. We have seen with Fujitsu blatantly willing to tell lies for their own private purposes. And if this stuff just stumbles into stuff that has huge and real human consequences, and there, yeah, there is a point where we either decide to have oversight over them, proper oversight over them, or we decide to bring it back into in house.
2: Yeah. And the British taxpayer shouldn't be paying a penny, not an absolute penny, right? If we can afford to award them, what, just under £4 billion worth of new contracts since 2019 when they admitted this was their fault. Why this is on the backs of the British taxpayer, heaven only knows. Fujitsu can afford it and they can afford to play it tomorrow. To, to Mike's point in the text, I'm sounding like a populist. No, I'm sounding like somebody who's frustrated with late-stage capitalism. It's painfully obvious we've seen so many examples that nationalizing everything has not worked our energy costs are the highest in europe and we have the most deregulated uh, energy sector the logic was that you deregulate all this stuff and there'd be cost savings for the consumer oh no Sir bob it, it's turned around completely the opposite way our postal service it, it is creaking and and we have the, this massive scandal which Admittedly w- was brought In under a Labour administration I don't to make too much of an uh, Ideological point about this but then When the service was privatised the, the service has just degraded And we can look at The quality of water and uh, in, in our rivers and In our streams it just goes On and on N- Nobody's talking about going back to the 1950s where we, the government would nationalise the car industry. No, but for key strategic industries, energy, postal, and some communications, which comes under postal, that's got to be um, in public hands so we don't have these these the vagaries of the, the market controlling it, which fundamentally means that key money should be made to invest into the service is siphoned out, for shareholder dividends what i want is clean water right i don't want effluent put into rivers because it's cheaper for the the water company to dispose of it that way no build the infrastructure invest in cleaning it because water should not be a profit making thing it's of a national good and a national right and on that note gentlemen i'm banging my drum call me a populist all you want i'm going to say adieu Tara, a bit and goodbye but before i do that i need to come to you mr kobeck and say it's always great having you on the show jk what have you been up to in the last ten days and how was your christmas i've been writing a lot
0: and my christmas was horrible i was sick for that entire week i was laid up so i did nothing really couldn't move
2: if you're going to be sick at any time of the year you know why Christmas is the best time, isn't it? Because no one's bothering
0: you. Yeah. Me, really. Yeah. Christmas is also complicated because it's the day that my father died. <laughs> so it's, of being sick on that day was not the worst thing in the world. Put it that way. But otherwise, I'm doing good.
2: Just working. Can you tell us what the topic is? No. No. Okay. I'm not alone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It. All right mister. Dollyhue, how was your Christmas and happy New year, sir?
4: yeah, happy New year. It was good it was I was watching a lot of inquiry YouTube and yeah, wrapping up school. that trend, yeah, yeah, I do a little bit of school now and then, but yeah, I don't I, and i'm just I'll throw one last note on the uh, AIDS versus the post office bonfire. Mm-hmm. I'm not at all surprised that it took a drama through a tv show to get the public's attention and i think it's just the continuing decline of newspapers and that conversation versus again i'm going to sound like a boomer but the tiktok generation short snippets emotionally engaging um video um i was trying to think of Big things that have been broken by newspapers and carried by newspapers alone, which is a, is unfair because everything transitions to TV. But I just I don't know if that investigative journalism on a print basis or online basis is super relevant anymore. I th- I think you're going to start seeing a lot more privately funded drama streaming content, etc. For people who want to raise attention to these issues.
2: I think that's totally a fair point, but the thing is, the media did know and still wasn't interested. So it's not quite that there wasn't the inve- nobody had investigated this because there were podcasts about this, Radio Four did a series about this, and we said Private Eye, etc., etc. But still, that wasn't enough pressure for the government to do anything. I would and I
4: we've had this conversation before the media is just a reflection of the public if the media if if the public is interested in something the media will cover it all day long so the the, the media tried they put out their feelers and nobody
2: bit it you know what this is a conversation uh, i think for another time cuz i s- certainly disagree with you. It, it it's about media agendas but anyway this is the point when i just say How's everybody been for the last seven days? But I think this is an interesting philosophical argument. I really do. But Steve O'Neill, it's not often you, know, you grace this podcast with your presence. Thank you, sir, for coming on. How's your Christmas and Happy New Year? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm not here more often.
3: I had a lovely Christmas. I did my traditional bout of COVID the few weeks before Christmas to get out of the way to be ready for Christmas. Cooked a mash turkey, okay, which was good. And I did a little bit of writing myself about ships. I don't know if you know that I'm slightly now a little bit of an active Labour member. So I've started to write for Labour List and I did some writing based on some of my podcasting in the past, actually, and some of the insights I've gained from that. So I might do a few more of those, but um trying to do new, new
2: resolution, do one a month this year, one article somewhere a month, my, my plan. I doubt I'll make it, but I'll try. No, you know what? I did a little bit of writing a, a, as well, just over Christmas, finished a biography of Chiang Kai-shek. So I did for Ian Dale's new book on dictators. But anyway, that's me being slightly braggadocio. Tonya, did you do any writing over Christmas? Do you want to opine on Chiang Kai-shek's demise, his legacy for Taiwan and for China? or maybe there's another dictator that you want to talk to us about.
5: I haven't done a writing. It's something that I hope to do at some point when I become a lord and I have more time on my hands. Then, you yeah, know, I'll, I'll do more writing and debating in the House of Lords, <laughs> but not at the moment. Yeah, fascinating. I spent my Christmas just having a very relaxing time, catching up on some of the documentaries I wanted to watch, catch up on, on movies, and reading some books. You yeah, know, I've been reading The Secret Barrister, finding out all of the hidden injustices in our justice system. Yeah, yeah, so that's been keeping me crackling over the last few weeks. Yeah. And I just, when you were talking there, Royfield, about what we see with water, with education, with utilities, with some of the other stuff, I just thought the, the word for it that came to my mind, this is all just really criminal. This, what they're doing with the taxpayers' money and how it's been siphoned into private pockets and how we are left out of the new. U- it's all just criminal. I am glad to see that the post office is facing criminal prosecution on this stuff. But, yeah.
2: Listen, uh, uh, 100%. And then the the whole thing is even more perverse if you look at something, the railways, which is an example where you can't have real competition. You can't have one train speeding past another to pick up more passengers. And because the whole thing just doesn't make any sense economically, we actually spend more Uh, to give bailouts and grants to rail franchises than we ever did when we nationalised it. And then there is no rural services because they're not economic. The whole thing is perverse and bizarre. Uh, And and we need, and this is one for you, Steve, that second Labour administration, Starmer needs to have some testicular fortitude and say we need to take some stuff back into public ownership. Post office railways and then let's get the ball rolling because not only will it deliver for the british citizen it'll actually be a cash windfall for us in terms of net saving the treasury and on that note there you go good people i'm going to say tarar a bit from birmingham this has been uh, your first mid-atlantic with the team with the posse with the boys with the crew and we'll see you all again next week for another riveting thought-provoking bombastic look at politics and both sides of the Atlantic. So it's bye bye from Mr. Kobeck in Los Angeles. Bye bye from Mr. Donahue, also in in California. And my good friend Steve O'Neill in London and Tonya Old Trade, also in London. Ta ra. Bye bye. Thank you. Steve, did you see no. right, so the rights for the Labour Weekly?
3: They've got this mag. It's actually just a little magazine, the online thing called Labour List. And um. You can just submit it, articles, and so I think you're supposed to be a Labour. I'm not sure what the rules, but I think you're supposed to be a Labour member to write. But I just bumped into the term, and I was like, "Can I write some articles for you?" So I did. I've written a couple. I've done some out in the past, but yeah, yeah, Very cool. I, I have a
0: question about the Post Office scandal because I watched the series. I've been scamming a free subscription from the Times for over a year, so I've read a lot of articles about this. The thing that I cannot figure out is, did they know that the software was faulty? I, I know by the end that they knew, but did they know in the beginning or in the middle? I, I couldn't figure it out. They kept on telling
5: everyone that you were the only one facing this problem, um, mm. which was a bare-faced sly for a, a very long period of time. So they must have known something else was causing this problem because it wasn't just one person who was facing Mm. this
2: problem. I I Um, wonder, to to that point, and I I did nearly ask this, I think it it was cultural, wasn't it? In that, this software has come in and they've suspected that these post office, postmasters, were slightly on the fiddle anyway. So it's confirmation bias. You just think, Mm. we thought this anyway. And then the thing goes into private hands. And then you have a double down in that we we need to just save money, let's just get rid of these people. But I actually think it was there could well have been a cultural issue, thinking that the software was put there to make things more efficient, but also to to stop... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
5: yeah.
0: The other thing that I thought about when I was watching that show is... And I can't remember her name, the woman who is the head of the post office, all of else, yeah, seemingly a very terrible person, but what is it like to be that person when the i t v drama is airing? It's just you are now the chief Satan of the u k you have been <laughs> dramatized as this. Like, how do you get up the next day? So I,
5: I, I imagine her and Theresa May as pretty much the same personality, the same character, the same moral fiber. They come from the same school of thought, very religious and seem to be very heavily principled, but seem to also shrink at making decisions that are that, that should align with their moral principles. And you could just see Theresa May at the end of her premiership, just shrinking at every minister's question, just folding herself and crumbling. And she was known to be outspoken and, and a strong challenger. When she sits at the back benches, she's great. She challenges the government of the day very well at the back benches. She puts her, her points across very wonderfully and powerfully. But when she was prime minister, she just could not
2: stay the ship. And every... Like, this is true. I don't know. I, and I generally don't know. But what I think, I was surprised when I read that this one was an Anglican vicar. Is the vicar? Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but what that says to me, that, <laughs> what that says to me is that she's an institutionalist. That, and I think that is a stro- stronger indication as the reason why she took the stances that she did. It's a case of, this is what the institution, the software, the system says, and you just double down. And, as I said, I think there's a cultural issue here that these submasters, who were mini little emperors everywhere, of course they were siphoning off the top. Of course they were. But now the system has shone a light on this. I think, if you looked at her at the
5: select committee, when Nadhim Zahawi, which I don't like at all, but he did a very great job at really asking her pointed questions at the the select committee, if you looked at her at her responses as the CEO of the organization, Nadhim had to remind her that she was the CEO and she was in charge of making those things right. And she had felt like the decisions run away with her I didn't feel like she was in control of what the
2: organization He's was genius. doing that's what I'm saying maybe we're saying the same the, thing the yeah. a, a wider system exactly as opposed to somebody who can cut through and say she, wait on a minute right hold the, on a second bro, right? let's the, think about this yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying it's somebody who's fundamentally part of the system and in my kind of understanding somebody who is and my mum is a reader in the Church of England but somebody who's a Church of England apparatchik you're not really... You're not rocking the boat at all, are you? Yeah, it just it goes with the denomination. You're an institutionalist. There are a lot of that's where and, 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 and to that point, though, I think politicians who can... In, in the British sense... America's very different with the whole kind of primary system. But if you... In the parliamentary system where you have to navigate the, your way to the top and then to be able to cut through that that is that's much more exceptional because our system is supposed to breed institutionalists people who understand the system believe in the system you just tweak this a little bit that way do, 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 yeah. you know type of thing but I just want
0: to re- return to my point imagine how you get up in the morning <laughs> yeah like imagine the day after the last episode because that shit that scandal is so bad that they didn't even have to dramatize very much, right? Like that. Uh, from what I've read about it, there's not a huge amount of invention in this, based on a true, truce Yeah, like it's so bad, and, and like it was dramatic enough. Yeah, you're the villain in that piece. Obviously, she watched it. Obviously, she watched every minute. And then the next day, you have to get up and be a vicar. Or whatever the hell it is she's doing I, it must be
5: she's gonna return her her obe or cbe yeah um, she just i just read a guardian piece today where she said she's gonna return it which it's I surprising
2: because i thought yeah the people you have these days <laughs> don't return that stuff <laughs> i i think one of the one of the ways and maybe how you do get out of bed the next day is by saying, as I'm just going to come back to my point, you're institutionally, I was a cog in a wheel and there were people reporting to me, I didn't exactly make that decision, that characterization in that drama wasn't really uh, relevant, it ex- wasn't really uh, accurate, sorry, etc. That you say there were things happening which I just wasn't abreast of. For a start off, you say, I didn't even sign off on Horizon, that was 1999, I only came in 2015, etc, etc so that's the way which you still get out of bed the next day but yes and you know what I, I, I'm not belittling anybody who finds themselves painted out to be Darth Vader right especially if you believe that you've done a good job and you're you're a vicar of Christ so you think that you, you're on the side of the angels but I, I haven't got that much sympathy for somebody who's
0: Oh, I have no sympathy. Okay. I just, I think that was not me being em- em- empathic or sympathetic. I just was like, it could not be worse.
5: So I I thought it was, the was over a long time ago.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. I, the thing about this one is, it could not be worse, right? To be the villain in a thing, the numbers could be higher. But, like, they could have prosecuted 10,000 people or, or whatever. That would be worse in terms of the human damage. But the actual thing could not be worse. It is the absolute failure of a modern civil society in every way. And then to be the person who's the villain of it, it's just awful. It's just insane. It's incredible.